Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal and our mission to make a difference. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you happen to be listening to this show, um, we, we welcome you to Shattered Lives Radio and archive shows every uh, Saturday with uh, nearly uh, five years' worth of archives. And we're built. We're constantly accumulating new information, and today is no different. Uh, we we have a, um, a a second time repeat offender guest, and one of our favorites, who is Felix Nader, who is with Nader Associates, who is a consultant with regard to uh, security management and workplace violence and. Um, don't miss the, uh, the the first show that I put up because that's kind of like a preview of today. But we wanted to expand upon what we did for the first show. But and, um, let's just take a minute out here uh, before I introduce um, Felix uh, to say good morning, uh, Delilah, and uh, what's happening in PR land there. Any little tidbits you'd like to share? Oh, well, you caught me off, off guard there, Donna. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, that's okay. That's all right. And we always have to think fast on our feet, right? Well, I think um, your introduction to our guest was, was fantastic, and we always like to have um, guests come back that can – we never get enough time, even though, you know, they come back and back and back. There seems to never be enough time to get all the information um, out there that they have. And, and again, this is one important show um, for everyone to listen to, and especially those of us who work. <laughs> um, yes. They, you know, Felix has been at this business of uh, workplace pre- violence prevention for a long, long time. So I feel very comfortable in the information that he has to give to us today. And uh, let's get the show on the road. Okay, very good. And I know you always like to say, and I think it's kind of thematic, we're going to talk about the difference between being proactive versus reactive. And one phrase he used, putting the cart before the horse. That's very important. So without further ado, Mr. Felix Nader, welcome back to Shattered Lives Radio. It's a, I it's a am pleasure to have fired you. up, Donna and Delilah. This is a, <laughs> an opportunity that I enjoy because I think your audience really appreciates you, and because they appreciate you, I want to be part of that that wonderful uh, feeling. Well, great. You know, I, I try so hard, and it's it's you know you can't always appeal appeal to everyone all the time, but. You try to stay current, and with what's happening in our society, I think the services that you offer are so vital. And maybe it's not glamorous, but it's vital. So we're we're here to educate and to increase awareness, and that's what we want to do. Um, so with regard to, um, you know, we did a first show that sort of gave an overview and talked about active shooter things and what people typically do in the workplace and 
and how our structure works, and it, it just doesn't work. It, it's non-functional, I think, because you said that they don't consider the the interests of, of, you know, people in the workplace over, you know, profits or what's the easiest thing to get this done and check it off the list. Is that right? That is right. You know, it's it's so confusing, Don and Delilah. We're at a crossroads in our way of looking at uh, workplace violence prevention that requires a paradigm shift. You know, this notion of putting adults in a classroom setting, putting on the video cam- uh, video monitor, showing a 10 or 15 minute video, and then getting an insider who has no expertise, no appreciation for the content to do an overview is insulting. And it's actually a time bomb for a very, very smart and shrewd uh, and litigious plaintiff attorney following a major incident. We should stop doing it that way. Well, is it is it all about you know the, being being reactive? Is it this is the typical model for institutions and government and all of that? Um, is, is it is it based on money solely? Lack of money. I hate. Yeah, you know, I I hate to be negative. I like taking things in a positive direction, but I'll give you an example. When I go into these consultation sessions with prospects who eventually hire me as clients, they call me because they've done their due diligence on my philosophy. And although they may want a particular focus or direction, they are open-minded to the concepts that make more sense, that are cost-effective but are comprehensive, and achieve not only their immediate, but their long-term goals of delivering quality stuff. It is cost-effective, but you don't have to be cheap at it. You don't have to run down and and task the resources of a local police department who really, really do a great job in responding to an incident, but really have no inside familiarity with your corporation. And then you send the lowest of the lowest to these sessions, or you send someone who can't make high-level decisions, and where does the influence uh, uh, end up at? It doesn't go any further than the individual who received the information, so it's counterproductive. So it is about not spending money on human resources, not spending money on the people that you hire and you talk about caring so much about. Well, see, don't you see, a lot of times what I've seen, and, and maybe you can validate this in some way, a lot of the police departments are trained in reactiveness. It's, you know, a crime happens and they know how to go out and solve it or they know how to go out and find the person who did it and it's all about the criminal. It's not very often about the victim. And so, therefore, most of their training is going to be that reactive training and they don't do a lot of prevention training. And it has been my experience. And what do you think about that? You know, not taking a knock anywhere. Um, Their crime, police departments uh, have crime prevention entities, and those crime prevention entities are responsible for getting out to the communities. I commend them, but they're not the experts when it comes to corporate security and the issues impacting corporate security. They try to elicit input so they can expand upon their programs to make it that more comprehensive and and meaningful to corporate sector and to private sector. But to your point, they do a great job in responding to the reaction of an event, of an incident, and they do a great job in trying to help the workforce understand what they're there for. But the workforce has a responsibility to stand up, to implement and manage uh, policies and procedures that help the police do a great job when they get there. And it isn't just a run, hide, and fight silly video. It's about understanding what run, hide, and fight is, what is corporate's responsibility in standing up policies, plans, and procedures to support the prevention, proactive, and the violence response, reactive nature of what their responsibilities are. So when you send somebody to police training and they do a great job, who's going to be the person back at the workplace who rolls out this comprehensive, not complicated, comprehensive uh, approach to what is corporate's responsibility? What's an employee's responsibility? How does it tie into OSHA and their responsibility under the general duty clause that employers have to provide for a safe, secure workplace? It's all got to be umbilically connected. Yeah. um, Well, how do we, 
illustrate to people like procurement that that they need they need to change their ways. I mean, when you talk about government, and I've worked with in the government setting for almost 17 years now, everything is a policy, everything is a statute, and it takes like a gazillion layers to to change anything but, you know, uh, very minor things. And it's so bureaucratic, whereas I think the um, the private sector, it's easier to change, isn't it? Um, no. It's just no? as difficult in the private sector. It's the same <laughs> problem of trying to turn an aircraft carrier on a dime. They are probably as more cumbersome uh, in corporate America than you would expect in government entities. Is it that is right? Incredible. You know, I, I work for a client in the Carolinas uh, has uh, has a responsibility in three states. I've never seen a fluid operation. I've never seen a seamless get-the-job-done operation at the senior management level. They put their foot down and they said, we want this program, and they made it happen. No interruptions, no interference, and it got out to three states very effectively. Wow. So you have to have a... I call it I call it the UC. You have to have under, management has to have understanding. They have to have a commitment, and they have to have an investment in workplace violence prevention and violence response. Right, and so you need to be taught when you go and make a, a presentation in a in in a particular uh, corporate setting or a business. Do you always target like the highest level people so that they get the information directly? Um, I try to. Um, most of the time, I have audiences with people who are exploratory in nature, asking questions, picking my brains, and then insulting my intelligence and never calling me back. So those are the people that, even though I want to educate them and inform them, it, it, they don't go anywhere with the information because all they're trying to do is internalize the ability of themselves doing it based upon the collection of the information that someone like me may, may share. Um, I don't blame procurement. You know who I do blame, and I don't mean this in, in a negative or, or hostile way or demeaning way. I blame HR, and, and I blame security, because those two have to be ambassadors within organizations to educate the workforce from the top down. The CEO of a large corporation, a middle-sized corporation, or a small corporation should have data. They should have the same data that I have that talks about their organizations. Forget about other people's data. You know, that is good to get the foot in the door, but then you should be able to overwhelm them with your own unique, specific data that supports the rationale and justification for why you, boss, might want to consider doing something for our own organization. Does that make any sense? Well, yeah, but, you know, typically a lot of times businesses subcontract to a security company and they don't work you know, within that same place, and, oh, it's just another line item added on service, so how do they really collaborate if they don't really work for that entity? Well, well shame on them. It, you know, it's the same expectation that... That's what happens that, where I work. <laughs> yeah, shame on them. It's the same expectation that they that they impose upon police. You know, police have their hands full. When they get a call and they respond to an active shooter, and I call it a hostile intruder because it, it runs the gambit in terms of weapons, but let's just call it an active shooter for the benefit of your audience. When they yeah. roll out, I mean, they're earnest, they're sincere, and if somebody gets killed before they get there, these poor departments are being sued because they didn't respond expeditiously. They didn't prevent the incident from happening. They didn't do something. And, and therein lies the problem when you when you uh, outsource your security as a corporate entity and you don't bring in that security expectation to understand what their responsibilities are in line with the corporate policy and in line with what the wonderful police forces are going to do when they get there. So you're absolutely right. There is no, I call it dysfunctional workplace violence prevention. The entities don't talk to one another. It's all siloed and there's no cross-functional communication. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, even in our state, there's been many incidents, as you know, of Sandy Hook. There's been many. What What about those environments, quote-unquote, where lessons have been learned, supposedly here in Connecticut, in Colorado, uh, in Paris, everywhere? Is that um, – 
would would we would would that be um a lesson for change or over time they go back to being complacent as well felix i mean are are those the model incidents that you use but then if if they don't keep are vigilant it goes back to complacency I, I would agree. I would agree. And, and, and therein, that's a mouthful, and therein is the heart of the problem, is that the people dedicated to protecting our country, our wonderful United States of America, they do a great job in the federal institutions, in the local police institutions. The problem is, at the corporate level, these folks responsible for doing the same things that the federal level does to protect us and the local level does to protect us, they're not being resourced, and they don't have the, the, the ear and the voice of the right people. And oftentimes, these corporate security gurus are so, are so misaligned where they need to be the advisor to the CEO. They've got some interference running between their knowledge, their skills, and their ability that doesn't get conveyed exactly from the concern and vantage points that they offer, and their message gets lost. So when they say, you know, I need to spend $10 million on a CCTV system or some audiovisual te- technology system that will allow me to better protect the organization, they, they frown at $10 million. Well, here's my rationale. You've got 10 departments, a $1 million each. That takes care of the technology needs. We all collaborate with the value that each department can derive from the technology, and we share in the benefits and we share in the costs. But unfortunately, these corporate security guys don't work directly for the CEO or for a senior, senior member of the CEO's team. They work for an HR, for a facility guy. And I'm not knocking folks, but they don't have the direct ear of the CEO. There's a, again, I've got to go back to my Carolinas you know, relationship. It is incredible how this individual had the, the, the attention of the C-suite on virtually every single question that, of importance right through the corporation council. That's where it needs to be. So you're, you're using that as an example of a best model because that's what I was going to ask you. Could you, could you kind of illuminate for us what a best model scenario would be? And, that, and like you said, that's like a middle-sized corporate setting? Any organization, well, middle-sized corporate settings may or may not have a security entity. They probably uh, outsource it to a security guard company, who right, offers, like yeah, who offers security guard services, you know, that's neither here nor there. It may not be the best way of doing it. I say if you're going to outsource it, outsource it to a security consultant who specializes in workplace violence or uh, at least a consultant who understands security management and understands workplace violence prevention. Um, so I'm not suggesting a model. There's, enough, there's been enough studies by a variety of different smarter organizations than, than me that have talked about why it works better when the ear uh, and, 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 and voice is directly to the people who make those decisions. It works more effectively. And you're right, right after September 11th, all of this was redesigned to have that emphasis, but it's been filtered down since, and it's all, almost right back to the way it used to be. And it's difficult for you know it's difficult for the infrastructure to be protected when when the then the federal government is trying its hardest to put together programs and plans that aren't getting integrated into their way of thinking. It's pretty difficult. Wow. Well, in your experience, do foreign countries have do they fare better in in this arena? And is there a good example of you know? Uh, a, a foreign country that that does things consistently a lot better than we do. Um, Israel, probably the only one that comes to mind. Um, you know, in my dialogue with some of these folks via email and, and Skype, they don't look at workplace violence the way we look at workplace violence. It is not an issue in many regards. It is becoming a a, a trend affecting their organizations. But I think all in all. The federal government tries to be proactive, um, but the consultants in the community are really the ones who are the proactive ones because they're constantly looking at ways of staying ahead of a trend, analyzing and evaluating, and then finding their contribution. So I, I think to give it due diligence in, in responding to this, I think the United States does a much better job 
with its, with it, without imposing its will on corporate America than the rest of the world does. Israel does a great job because it incorporates security into the personal life, the family life, the business life, and the, and the, and the military and government life. So they understand security a lot better than we do and take it hmm. seriously. That, that's interesting. Um, with regard to, um, I know in, in reading some of the information that you had shared with me, um, mm-hmm. going back to the initial active shooter scenario mindset, you had told me that there are five stages um, that never get discussed with mm-hmm. with regard to that. Um, and could we touch upon those, and then we'll get into your uh, rap? <laughs> oh, boy. You surprised me. Very nice. Um, th- this time I am going to be uh, hypercritical. Okay. When, when, I go, when I go around and I sample free training again, I, I hear commendable intentions, honorable intentions on the part of local police to, to address the audience. You have, to, you have to appreciate that the audience is very general. I went to something like this sponsored by a university out of Virginia Beach uh, earlier this year, and I was dumbfounded at what was coming out of the speaker's mouths about active shooter and, and corporate America. But even in, that, even in that scenario that was supposed to be a little bit more comprehensive, I never once heard any reference to the five stages. And the five stages are are very, very important to understanding the mindset of the shooter because when we're talking about workplaces, the mindset is directly tied to the person's attitude, dispositions, and displays of demeanor. And so if you understand the mindset, then you can pretty much tie that in to your prevention program in recognizing aggression and aggression behavior and aggression predisposition. But it never gets talked because even the people who go to these training programs, they're so excited about the physical aspect of it that they don't dwell and spend the time that someone like me does in analyzing the impact that it will have on the organization when someone doesn't know what to do or when the value is critically understood in how best to tie it back to workplace violence prevention. And I'll give you an example. There are two stages that are very important, the fantasy and the planning stage. Uh, In the fantasy stage, he probably is still an employee. He's probably still talking about what has happened, how he was the victim, and now he's being charged with being aggressive. And uh, and if he loses his job, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. And he starts talking about things that he's liable to do. He starts making inquiries about where he can find guns. He makes references to my God, you know, I was playing the video game last night, and I've shot more and ki- more people and killed more people, but people don't make the connection because they don't understand how it ties in. In the planning stage of the five stages of that mindset, the individual is now collecting the ability, doing the research, trying to figure out how they're going to do this, and they start building their, their database. They start doing inquiries into where to buy guns. They start doing uh, research on how to get into the facility. Now the person has been suspended, and he's out and about. Now we see him lurking around the facility. We think he's there to see HR. We think he's there to discuss some benefit he's entitled to or some sort of uh, questions about uh, an HR issue. We think he's there to socialize with his friends. But actually what he is doing is reconnoitering the area to see if there are any gaps in security and to get a layout of the land and see how things were before he was separated and to see how we can begin planning to get back in. So those phases are critically important to what the corporate America needs to do and understand what the person is going through and then the criticality of those decisions once they get to the approach phase, there's no turning that person back because he's right at the point of execution that we call the implementation phase, and that's when it's too late unless a sharp police officer happens to be right behind him and he makes one of three mistakes. He doesn't indicate a turn signal, he has a broken taillight, or he rolls through a stop sign. And on, if he does one wait, of those wait, three wait, things... Wait, wait, traffic infractions? I, I, I'm not getting the connection. Say that again. <laughs> well, the, you know, in the, when, when the person makes the approach, 
in that last stage, this is why it's important, in that last stage of the mindset of the active shooter, when he is in the implementation or the execution stage, he is rolling to the target. The only way that person is going to get stopped because he's really made up his mind. He wants to avenge his personal uh, rationale for why he was separated. The only way he gets stopped from arriving at the location is by a sharp police officer who happens to be behind him, and he makes one of three mistakes. He rolls through a stop sign, and the police mm-hmm. officer pulls him over. He doesn't indicate a turn signal, and the police officer pulls him over. Or a sharp police officer happens to notice a broken taillight, which might be an indication of a hasty departure from a crime scene. But how often would that happen? I mean, really? Yes, that happens often. It, uh, while he's 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 in a rush to get there, um, in my experience, like in the, in the situation where where I work, and it's you know it's all very controlled, and there's gates and government. Once you are discharged. You know, and, and like you know this, if you've been um, fired by HR, they bring you right over to the desk. They don't even let you clean out your desk anymore. They put things in a box. You are not allowed on the premises whatsoever, and you can't be, you can't be lurking there to check things out, except maybe on the public road or something. So, um, and aren't those? There are those people that want to go down in a blaze of glory and want the police to shoot them. So maybe those are going to be some people that do traffic infractions so they can get the police there so they can say, you know, go ahead and shoot me, I don't care, kind of thing. Well, I'm I'm sorry that I, you know, maybe it was inappropriate for me to inject that. I I was just trying to introduce the importance of having an understanding in how these five stages tie into workplace violence. No, in answer to your question, that is not what happens. What happens is the person made a mistake in his preoccupation to get to the target location. He made okay. a mistake, and he attracted the attention of a police officer. I got it. It, it isn't intentional. He doesn't want to go on a blaze of glory because like the university, like the college, the workplace is an emotional crime. It's an emotional crime based upon, based upon revenge, retaliation motive. They want to get even. So they're not going to make mistakes. But sometimes a preoccupation may draw the attention of a sharp police officer who then gets involved in a shootout with the individual. It, it wasn't intentional. Okay. I, I okay. got it. And, yeah, to your point, um, and, to your point of, and to your point about government entities being secure entities, come on. In a courthouse... <laughs> In Michigan, about three months ago, I believe it was the, the, the Geffen or the Breffin Courthouse in Michigan, a police, uh, a sheriff and, and a deputy were, two were killed and one was wounded and the, and the, and the, uh, the defendant was killed. So it can happen in secure facilities because Absolutely. the planning is the problem, the planning. Once you drop your guard, you create an opportunity, these people who are bent on retaliation, take advantage of your gaps, and that's when they commit their mayhem. Yeah. Typically, how long does it take for them to, like, plan? Is this something that they do over the course of maybe, like, a year? Or, I mean, in terms of them trying to be successful, I'm sure there's data on that. You know, there is data on that. You know, the FBI says between 2000 and 2013, there were about 160 incidents and 132 incidents involved the workplace specifically. But if you, I call it in my in my in the organization that I'm aligned with, called the Workplace Violence Prevention Institute, we're a think tank that looks at all this stuff and figures out how best to never get to a very hostile situation. Well, one of your lawyers on that team calls it the life cycle. If you hire properly and you separate properly, the things in the middle are well done. If you hire improperly and you separate improperly, the things in the middle are poorly done. And the things in the middle that are poorly done are the things that lead to the ill will and the anger and the festering a year, 22, 23 months later, that depending upon how well you recover from that ill will, the person could, depending upon his or her predisposition, come back and exact their vengeance on the workplace. So you've got to pay attention to how you lead people, because I do say the reason why we have 
problems at work is lackluster leadership, lackluster supervision, lackluster management intervention, and a distrust and disregard for management on the part of employees who look at what they say and do as hypocrisy. Well, with that, that smoldering pot, and you separate someone with that ill will, that's someone who might have a, a bend to get even, might rationalize his and justify his reasons for doing it, could easily use the way you poorly treated him as his reasoning for coming back. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there's a whole lot of responsibility here that is only tied to some silly notion that adults will get it when you put them in a classroom and you get a dummy like me to talk about warning signs and risk factors. That is not prevention. Without understanding the organizational commitment, the organizational investment, that is only enlightening employees on what to look for. But what about the prevention piece that never gets the employee to be angry in the first place? Yes, that's getting to the core. How do we, how do we get to that um, juncture, Felix? Um, a reality shift, a paradigm shift. We have, over the last 20 years, we have commoditized workplace violence. There is a time and a place for videos. There's a time and a place for uh, bringing a guy like me in to do compliance or spend your money end of the year training. There's a, but it must be tied into a rationale that says it supports my policy, it supports my strategy. You can't just train adults one time a year haphazardly and expect there to be any retentive value from that. Look, I serve two wonderful uh, parts of my country. In, as a postal inspector and as a Army uh, citizen soldier in the Army. And it doesn't come easy. That muscle memory, the stuff that's in the, the amygdala piece of the brain, doesn't get there by you training one time. It gets there by you talking to that subconscious piece of your mind all of the time. So when I come along and, and I have the benefit and the honor of talking to a group of adults, I tell war stories that help ferment and cement the training value. I don't just show a video and then not reinforce the video. And it can be done by experts, but it can't be done by civilians who work for the organization that happen not to be in that security line or have some intimate knowledge of it. Because all the stuff they were trying to get the workplace to do, Donna and Delilah, is stuff that needs to be rehearsed over and over and over again. And it doesn't happen by twice-a-year training. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I I wish I could invite you to where we work. Maybe <laughs> that would be well, wonderful. I'd shake things up. Go ahead, Delilah. Well, I was just going to, speaking in general, Felix, mm-hmm. where do you think that there has been an increase in violence generally? It, it, or are we just hearing about it more because everything is is given to us at a much quicker pace now with you know with the internet we hear about so much um violence out there and especially active shooters has this always been a problem or is is this a more recurring problem in our society today and where do you think the root cause of this is what's going on with us what And I didn't ask you to pose that question. It's a three-part uh, answer that I can give to that question. So I'll answer the last part first. It is most unfortunate that we become vulnerable to morons that we're fighting outside of this country called ISIS who uh, have a targeted audience in the United States of unhappy, disgruntled people who are easy to convince to think the way they think. It starts at home, it starts at schools, it starts in relationships, it starts in workplaces. So since workplaces and schools occupy a majority of our time, why can't we make these environments wholesome and appealing and attractive so that there is a better outlook in the hearts and minds of our students, our uh, employees, to feel good about being at work as opposed to confrontational? I mean, look, take a look at healthcare. It is four, they suffer four times more of, of, the, uh, of the violence than the average employee does in corporate America. Four times more. And you know why? The nurses are the victims. And you know why? Be- because it's all tied to economics. 
I can't put the pressure on the family. I can't put the pressure on accountability on the patient because I'm going to lose that bed. So, nurse, your responsibility is to get out there and take care of that. We don't care how you get it done. Just take care of it and be safe. It's, it's counterproductive. And, and the employees know it's lip service. And the people who are in the decision-making venues, they don't want a guy like me who wants to help them. They want to continue moving right along, doing the very same things that they've been accustomed to do it. Um, I had an opportunity, and I won't mention the name of the healthcare facility, but I had an opportunity to speak to a healthcare organization, and the vice president got it. You know, the, ver- the vice president understood that what I was offering um, was a possibility, and it needed to be and it be agreed upon by the other sections of the hospital. It never got to that point because my approach is based upon a RAP concept, you know, a robust, agile, and proactive strategy tied to an aggressive violence interdiction model that holds the entire organization responsible, accountable for the consequences of their failure to be proactive. When you get to a reactionary mode, you're doing a lot of things that you really aren't prepared to do, and the outcomes sometimes are productive and they're satisfactory, but in most of the cases, they result in some terrible, terrible results. So so you get so far, and it sounds like you have to get somebody high in the decision-making um, hierarchy that gets it, and then you have to get through you know the layers in order to actually go in and do what do do what you need to do, which is sounds like you know very arduous, um, which is yeah. too bad. It, it, it is, Donna. But I'll but I'll talk to you about a mid-sized client of mine, and I'll say Bronx, New York. It took us a year to arrive at a decision to bring me on board, not because they didn't want to bring me on board but because I used the opportunity every time they invited me in to speak to enlighten them a little bit more without ever talking about a budget. Enlighten Uh them a little bit more about their responsibilities, how I see what they're doing at the point they were doing it very well, but how about considering this? And they made a decision November of that year after speaking with them for about 10 months that it was time for them to bring me in. So we have to give in to the notion that it is our responsibility to to heighten awareness. Don't go into sell. Educate. Go in to have a dialogue. Let there be a relationship that's built. I know my cycle takes, you know, at least 18 months to two years. I know that. But I also know, Donna and Delilah, that when somebody called me up and said to me, Mr. Nader, we'd like to do training in, uh, in August, and we have about 400 people to train. Uh, would you like to come in and do the training? Yes. But what's the reason for the training? Well, we have to do this as part of compliance. What's the reason for the training? What do you mean, Mr. Nader? Is it, tr- is it tied to an organizational redesign of the, an objective? Is it tied to reinforce a strategy? Is it tied to bring about a change? No, then I don't want to do the training. I'm, with all the respect. Yeah, no, it's just mandatory according to our protocol. Yeah, right? yeah I, don't, I don't do that. You know why? Ooh. Because I tell all my clients that I'm there with you from the beginning to the end. If something happens and the proverbial sugar, honey, ice, and tea hits the wall, I'm willing to take the risk with you. <laughs> I'm willing to go to the arbitration hearings. I'm willing to go to, you know, to testify on what we did as an organization. So I have buy-in, and they have buy-in. Oh, that's good to know. I mean, that should kind of set them at ease a little bit. It, it, it sounds great, and you're kind of going in and priming the pump, which is wonderful. I wanted to know um, – if, you know, we've got about 20 minutes left to our show, just to give you a little time check here. Um, with regard to smaller organizations, smaller entities, whether it be like a small business versus a corporation or a government setting, or even a one-person up to six-people person business, and those people that work at home, what can you tell us about the models that you have to offer mm-hmm. and some general principles that you you might want to pass on for those people that work in those environments. More and more people are working at home these days. Okay, okay. Let, let me let me share this and, and I'll answer the question. That sure. suicides at work, suicides at work is a trending upward consideration. Probably wow. more of a concern than someone going postal. I hate to say that, but more of a concern. And we're not paying attention to that. 
Um, and, and so really? I throw that out there. Yeah, it's it's going up, and, and I'm and I'm trying to collect some data to help me understand how much of it is is either from weapons or how are they committing suicide. Probably self-inflicted. Um, there's some data that that I do have that talks specifically about that. But to my model, it doesn't make it it's scalable. It makes no difference whether you're a large organization, a mid-sized organization, or a small organization. It's the philosophy that I'm sharing. If you have a policy, if you don't have a policy and you're a ten-person operation, um, you better have a policy that protects your investment in your firm. Because if something goes wrong and the employees don't understand the expectation, then you're living, leaving yourself liable. And you don't need a large-scale operation to do that. You can manage it internally. You can manage it with outside resources. You as a CEO can publish a policy. You and your supervisors can be be familiar with the policy, and you then share that content of your employees. You bring them up to a level of understanding. You make it clear, and you tie it into all the other policies that are uh, likely to be published in an organization. It does. You don't need a security director. You don't need a security manager. You just need to have a proactively engaged HR type who understands the role and the functions and manages it. So it's scalable to any at the highest end, for example, you don't have to have an, an entire organization revolving around workplace violence. You could have you could have the individuals know what their responsibilities are and then they do their piece of it to prevent and minimize the risk from a workplace violence incident. At a at a mid-sized organization, you can be you could hire a security manager or you could use the resources of the HR manager, and you can train all of the senior managers on their roles and functions and responsibilities. You hold them accountable, and you make it a part of their annual assessment and evaluation. How do we do? Uh, it's all tied into people and the, and the human relations factor. It's not complicated. It can be comprehensive, but it can be comprehensively designed and tailored to no matter whether you're a 10-person op operation or you have virtual employees at home, simple things like don't open the door when you hear a, a doorbell. See what you can see from the outside before you open the door. Giving each employee on their laptop an alert notification capability so that when there's a problem, everybody gets the message at the same time. So there's a way of tailoring this down, this down to the lowest level, provided you have the right audiences that want to listen and the right people that are conveying their skills, knowledge, and expertise. Wow. Um, it, so there's a component here. with uh, You could tie your computer system to your phone system, and it could all work in sync. Uh, it, that is, if you get your IT people on board with the security, on board with the HR and procurement yeah. and all of that, right? Yes, yes, yes. It could work very effectively and efficiently. Uh, when you tie in the organization so the organization understands what the objectives are. And, and that's the other missing piece, you know, when you hear me talk about the cart before the horse. So when you go to active shooter training, all of the stuff that we're talking about, including alert, notification, and communication, that is all part of corporate responsibility that never gets discussed at these, uh, at these training programs. And it's very important that we really approach these uh, expectations from a mature and responsible understanding of what they are. Yeah, that, I I totally agree with what you're what you're saying here. Um can can you tell me um with with the, the change in um presidential administrations and given the background of Mr. Trump, what what is your what is your feeling overall with his perspective versus um, Mr. Obama, for example, uh, what do you feel like he's going to have a priority with regard to this, or it's not priority making changes. I mean, have you heard or read anything about his stance on these kinds of issues that you work with every day? No, to be honest, uh, I have not heard anything. Uh, I'm open to wait and see what, where that goes and, and how that is uh, um, eventually rolled out. I'm not familiar with any of that. I don't think it's probably on his radar just yet. It's probably up to the agencies, uh, agency heads responsible for that. I can see that um, OSHA has been ramping up 
OSHA has been looking at uh, looking at ways of going back out to the field and, and asking for information so that they can better enforce their uh, their regulation, that duty to warn uh, clause. Uh, also to determine whether or not there is rationale based upon the, the feedback they get for the uh, request for a federal regulation to make it maybe more severe. So there are things that OSHA is doing that I hope continue to be done moving in that direction, um, in a more favorable direction towards being more structured and restrictive and in, in, in enforcing the, um, the violations of that statute. But again, you know, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm not all for laws that do that because you know what it does, it makes you complacent. It, right. You say, well, there's a law and the law will take care of it. No, not when you have an emotional crime. When you have an emotional response, there is no logic that an irrational, emotional person will respond to. So we've got to be the people who are logical. Uh, we have to avoid those situations by holding everybody responsible by being clear when you have a domestic violence policy let's train all the supervisors particularly the male supervisors in understanding what the poor victim goes through so that when you see mascara running down their eyes you're not thinking that they're laughing their hearts out they might be crying and so we've got to educate the the process so that there's sensitivity towards what our responsibilities are and what the consequences are when you fail to be due diligent. So tie all this stuff in under one program manager who, who can make the connections, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's that currently right. isn't, isn't being done. Um, this is where the paradigm shift is important. I mean, you don't have to hire me. Just pull out all my literature over the years. It speaks to the need of doing it internally, efficiently, and effectively through this process that I call integration, collaboration, coordination, and leadership. It, it doesn't cost you anything to train people to be thinkers. Well, yeah, and if you only have a, a certain budget or, you know, like you say, you're, you're kind of giving, feeding them nuggets of information until, you, until they realize that they really do need your expertise. But um, isn't part of the problem, too, and I, I've seen this in the culture, work culture over many different um, professions that I've worked in is that those middle managers, I mean, they don't want to be held accountable. What if I make a mistake? And, and then there's the thing with state government. You can't sue the state. They have sovereign immunity. So no matter, or at least by a, a person, I think, from the outside or a citizen or whatever. But what, you know, that's the thing. They, it's, we can be gung-ho and we can be team-oriented, but if they are held accountable because they didn't do this part of the of the scenario that they were supposed to do, so people are not going to want to jump on board to that model. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, I, I think we, we saw that. Um, we, we saw that when certain individuals said, I didn't have sex with that woman. Now kids don't consider what that person considered not to be sex, sex. So you have this permissiveness that's based upon the example, the poor example that people set becomes their normal behavior. Mm-hmm. So if, yeah. if I can't be sued, then, then I don't have to worry about doing the things that are proactive in nature. I'll, I'll wait for something to happen, and if it happens, I'll react to the situation. But, but you know, let me just be perfectly clear. A response to a situation, and this is where run, hide, and fight, and I have issues when you don't have someone like me articulating the whys, not the hows, the whys they are important. So response, remember this, folks. Response is when you think about what it is you need to do, you have a plan for when you do it. A reaction is when someone else makes you do what they want you to do. So run, hide, and fight in its concept is a good model, but you have to understand that there are three factors that interfere with logic. And that is, one, when there's a need to respond to, to a reaction, you freeze. And in that moment of freezing, you don't know what to do. It's not that you're going to be uh, not doing something eventually. is that you're going to freeze. And so, therefore, the bad guy, when he comes in, he doesn't say, okay, I'm in the place to shoot someone, run. I'm in the place <laughs> to come in to find you, hide. 
I'm in the place and um, I want to be stopped, fight me. This, it doesn't operate in a linear fashion. This is all counterintuitive. If I yell at you, Donna, if I yell at you, Delilah, what is going to be your natural response? You're going to yell back at me. So we got to get out of this notion of being linear in how we approach this. We should throw it out there and then say, Audie Murphy, the, the Medal of Honor winner that he was at 18 years of age, didn't join the Army to be a Medal of Honor, but his training prepared him well enough so that when he saw a decision that he had to be made, that he had to make, based upon a response, he reacted appropriately. And I tell our people, based upon everything I'm telling you, you're never going to hear me say to you, fight. I'm going to only tell you that Audie Murphy did something, and you're going to do whatever you need to do. But you're not going to do it in a sequence fashion. You're going to do it when it's appropriate. Yeah, and I guess you have to get into the habit of doing that, and like you say, practicing. And one of our very learned colleagues that we're having on next week about cultural trauma has told us that it takes three weeks, 21 days, to build any new behavior into a habit, Felix. Right, right, exactly. That's right. That's right. And we don't have the luxury of that time. And and there are two parts of the brain. You know, the brain is the physical part, right? But the, the parts of the brain that really do the operational piece of our daily survivals, the conscious and the subconscious. The conscious should be feeding the subconscious. But unfortunately, we don't feed the subconscious enough. And that's what makes the reaction, the freeze, the freeze that creates that momentary lapse in that momentary uh, poor decision that you make, like running, like running. Why do you want to run? Wh- where are you running to? You could run into the shooter. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, so, so I, you know, I open up my training and I say, look, I want to simplify this. So here, here's what happens. If you're in a movie theater and somebody starts shooting, what are you going to do? And I see the deer in the headlights look, looks, and I say, Here's what I want you to do because you're not going to be able to think. I want you to drop down where you are, gather yourself, compose yourself. Breathe. Let everybody that's running jump over you. You stay where you are because the shooter is going to be hitting the people that are running, not the people that are hiding. When you gain your composure, if you happen to be armed, then you can think lucidly and clearly and make better decisions. And don't forget this. The way you came in, is the way all the dumb people are going to run out of. So that's not where you want to go. So I get them to start thinking against the grain. You know, I, I get them to be contrarian thinking about how they should be responding. Because when you react, you're reacting to someone else's expectations, not yours. Right. Very, very practical information. Absolutely. Yeah. So, that, so to get to your original question as, as you wrap up, how do we create this paradigm shift? It, it, it takes a collaborative effort. It takes a, an individual that understands that if they really, really firmly believe that the employees is their most important resource, that somebody has to be responsible for teaching the rest of the organization what their responsibilities are. And, and that person who is responsible for doing this has to have the ear and the credibility of the senior most member of the organization. That's the only way. The, all these entities uh, are just uh, convoluting the, the response. Uh, it, it needs to be energized, and it needs to be focused, and it needs to be given credibility, and it needs to be resource, and there has to be senior management commitment behind it. Well, that, that sounds like a tall, tall order, but yet, like you say, it definitely is possible, and you have the best practices model to point to. And I, I'm hoping that over time, you know, that more and more people can convert to what you have to offer. And hey, well, um, you. if you if you had a, it, I want to make sure that you give contact information in case people are interested in in hiring you. Um, you know, even over a long period of time. But if you had a magic wand right now, what would be your first uh, charge in terms of making a significant uh, progress toward change, just in general for people? What would you wow. say? Wow. I mean, I, I think you and, you, you and Delilah have been, really been doing your homework on me. I try. I would, I would keep it KISS, keep it simple, 
You know what that stands for, stupid. I would do what most organizations don't want to do. I would develop, and I have it, you know, for anybody's use, I would develop an employee assessment questionnaire. It's detailed that goes out to either the entire workforce or a selective group of employees based upon how your the organization is designed. Col- collect that data, analyze that data, and really come up with a critical assessment of where you are and what you may want to do and need to do. And from that jump point, assess and evaluate the decisions, make a critical assessment of what the outcomes are of that survey, and say, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that all of this was going on. Do we lack a credible reporting system? Oh, my goodness, there's a gap here in what the employee perceives is the role of supervisors and an equally poor response by supervisors who don't understand what their role is. So the survey, by asking the workforce whether or not there's a need for it, is critically valuable. Is that something you have templates of, or that's something you help help organizations to devise? No, I have a template that I use as the the foundation, and I allow the client to do, to use it any way they want to use it, revise it, add or take away whatever they want. They don't want. Oh, that's great. That's a starting point. Can you give us um, some contact information? Sure, sure. Um, I'm delighted to share my toll-free number for anybody that would want it in the future. It's one eight seven seven eight two five eight one zero one. And I give my toll-free because it ties into uh, both offices in New York and North Carolina and my cell phone, so it's okay. easy to reach me. And my website is uh, Um And the best that I can hope is is trust the security directors if you have them. Uh, trust those people responsible for force protection, and, and there are some in some large corporations. Uh, trust that HR <laughs> Challenge that HR director to be more proactive in coming up with the internal data that's necessary to provide a rationale for whatever that the organization needs. And uh, at the low end, uh, 10 employees or less, 20 employees or less, develop a policy that protects uh, the workforce and the organization uh, against physical response and civil liability for negligence. Well. Yeah, that that sounds uh, very good and good homework assignment there. Um, will you please also keep in touch with us? Perhaps in the future we could do a show with regard to the uh, the data you're collecting on suicide because that was that was new to me and that's something that's very important um, to us and you know, maybe something we need to keep in on top of. Correct, Delilah? Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, Felix, this is an, always an ongoing invitation for you because you always have yeah. such good information, and the information changes each time we have you on. Well, you keep us up does. to date. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, you, you make it easy, and you make it a lot of fun. <laughs> well, um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. It's quite a compliment. So we are going to promote this show afterwards as well, please. Feel free to circulate it around on all the social media for repeated listening. And if I don't talk to you, good luck in choosing your tree today and have a, a wonderful holiday season, Felix. We we really respect and, uh, and care about you, and thank you for be, being part of our radio family. Well, thank you very, very much. You know, I don't profess to be a psychologist, psych- a psychiatrist, a doctor, or anyone. I just love what I do and I've immersed in it, and I try to come up with palatable solutions. Merry Christmas well, to the both of you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Same thing. So uh, with that, I guess we'll sign off for another Saturday's edition until next week. We have a really great show coming up then. So, again, thank you, Delilah. I appreciate your help always. And uh, thank you, Felix, and we'll see okay. you next week. Okay. okay. Be well. Thank you. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.